Well, good evening. If you can't guess, I'm not Nathaniel. Uh, I believe he's either on the way back from California or still in California. Uh, but tonight we're going to talk about dinner. If you haven't already had your dinner, I apologize for making you hungry. I haven't had my dinner either. So, But mealtime can bring out the best and the worst in people. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, have you ever had a family meal? Like, especially like a holiday meal, in which an argument or a conversation that's awkward has either been the appetizer or the dessert or, heaven forfend, the main course. Often people are off guard at mealtime and they'll say things that they otherwise wouldn't say and they'll do things they otherwise wouldn't do. I remember when we were kids, we were almost always on Thanksgiving sent to our rooms. Because we would be fighting or something because it was like a special occasion, but, you know, we were still kids. Sometimes a meal will show us what somebody's really like because they'll be off their guard. And that's going to be part of what we see here in Luke tonight. Now, when you have a, a meal... And it's no different in the time that we're going to be looking at from the way it would be today. You might invite somebody because you want to get to know that person. If you're the host, you might invite them because you want to get to know them better. And that person would become the center of attention of the meal. Well, the conversation would always be around them. But at other times, and you may have had this happen at a holiday... Someone shows up who's kind of unexpected and maybe even unwanted. Now, the host treatment of all the guests, but especially of that kind of guest, tells us something about the host. And that's also what we're going to see here tonight. Luke gives us an account of a meal that Jesus is invited to, but this meal comes after, in Luke's uh, narrative, a very, very, very sharp and very stern message that Jesus delivered. So if you will with me, turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and while our meal is going to begin uh, in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, I'm going to read to you just so you kind of get an idea of where we're coming from and where Luke thought to put this particular uh, meal. I'm going to read to you from beginning with Luke chapter 7, verse 31. This is after Jesus has healed many people in Galilee, and even John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to find out something about what Jesus was doing. And Jesus said to the crowd in Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 31, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. And we sang a dirge for you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, 
a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So after this in Luke, Luke presents us with this particular meal. The meal we're about to witness is going to tell us a lot about the host. It's going to tell us a lot about the invited guest, Jesus, who was the guest of honor. The guests in general, and one uninvited woman. So here's what Luke says, beginning with verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. We're not told, by the way, why the Pharisee, who we later learn is named Simon, invited Jesus. It doesn't say. This Pharisee might have wanted to ask Jesus about his teaching, especially in light of of Jesus' kind of coarse message about John the Baptist and how people didn't understand him and they didn't even understand Jesus himself. Maybe that was part of what Simon was going to ask about. But also it was common for the leading members of the synagogue to invite visiting rabbis, and that's what Jesus would have been, who were in the area, especially if that rabbi had taught like on, uh, in the synagogue on a Sabbath, then the, the leaders of the, one of the leaders of the, of the synagogue would have probably invited that rabbi in. So we don't know exactly, but it, those are the possibilities. Now, dinner in those days would look really strange to us, especially if it was kind of like a formal dinner. It would look really un- informal to us. Even in a formal dinner, people would like recline on cushions, and they'd be arrayed around a a small, uh, short, low central table on which the food was served. And each diner would face the table, and again, they're reclining, and point the rest of their body, you know, outward, away from the table. And each diner's legs would just be pointing away from the center dining area. Each diner would then support himself using his left elbow, because that way, you know, if you're kind of laying there, you can grab the food with your right elbow, or with your right hand, right? So that's typically the way uh, people would eat. And so just imagine Jesus laying there like that. And it says in verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, meaning Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So now this woman isn't invited, and we don't know her name. We're never told her name. And it might seem to us like she's kind of a party crasher. However, it was pretty common for people who weren't invited to be welcome to show up at these kind of things, especially if a visiting rabbi was there, because it was kind of good community relations to let the people in the town come in. So that would not have been unusual. Since she's described as a sinner, however, there's probably something else about her that makes this situation a little bit different. She's probably known to everybody who's guests at the table, or many of them anyway, as a sinner, meaning she's either a prostitute or just a really promiscuous woman. And they would know that when she came in. Now, 
into this dinner, she comes, and in verse 38 we learn, standing behind him, meaning Jesus, at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Remember, she brought that ointment. Because of the situation, this would be really, really, really unusual. As you probably know, the only shoes that people had back in those days, they didn't have like loafers or they all wore sandals. They didn't have socks. They didn't have sneakers. They didn't have Reeboks. Do they still make Reeboks? Anyway, they don't have that kind of stuff. And so it was very common for people, since they're walking around only wearing sandals on the dirt roads, for their feet to get really, really dirty. As a matter of fact, the roads and walkways were usually unpaved, so there's a lot of dirt, but also they're covered with animal dung and filth of different kinds. So if you think your feet are disgusting sometimes, their feet were pretty much all the time that way. Now, because of that situation, when you went inside, a lot of hosts, most hosts probably, would provide some place for you to take off your sandals and wash your feet. In this case, as we will see, that was not provided. That, that kind of folksy hospitality wasn't, wasn't offered to the guests, which makes this woman's actions all the more shocking. Because Jesus' feet were really probably quite dirty. Now, so picture the scene of what this woman did. She comes into this dining area, and instead of focusing on getting a place at the table, where everyone's eating, she stands behind Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus is reclining, but she stands behind him at his feet. And instead of keeping up a dignified composure, she begins to weep. We're not told here in this particular verse why she is weeping, although it's implied later. But even at this point, you could probably kind of guess. If someone came in and saw Jesus there, came to be there because Jesus was there, and started weeping, it's probably because of some kind of repentance and the joy at seeing Jesus. But that's what she does instead of going and getting a meal. And instead of avoiding Jesus' feet, now that they're wet because she's cried on them, she bends down, undoes her hair, and wipes Jesus' now muddy feet with the only thing she had to do that with, and that was her hair. Now, by the way, for a woman to loosen her hair in public like this, that alone would have been scandalous back then. As a matter of fact, in some circles, it was that alone would have been grounds for divorce if she'd been married. So that's what she does instead of joining the meal. And now, now that she's done that, instead of eating the meal with her mouth, she kisses Jesus' now dirty feet, now muddy feet. And instead of cleansing herself or her mouth with the ointment that she brought, which she could have done, she cleansed and sweetened the odor of Jesus' feet with that ointment and kept kissing his feet. 
Now, clearly she was there and wept and did everything she did because of Jesus. She was there for him, not anybody else. She brought the flask of ointment for him, not anybody else. She did what she did to him and for him, not to impress anybody else, but just because it was Jesus. Jesus was her only focus. Now, that wasn't necessarily true of everyone. Verse 39 tells us, Now, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, the Pharisee's focus was on the uninvited and unwelcome guest. Not the important invited guest. In fact, the only attention he gives to Jesus is to focus on an imagined deficit or failure in Jesus that that he takes to be proven by the fact that Jesus is allowing this relatively unusual, perhaps even scandalous behavior on the part of the woman to continue. That's what he focuses on. The Pharisee judged both the woman and Jesus. As we will see, that indicates that he understood neither of them. He did not ask what the woman's behavior could mean. Or he didn't ask Jesus why he was allowing it. But Jesus, on the other hand, knew. He knew the woman, what, at least what she was doing and why she was doing it. And he also knew what the Pharisee was thinking. Now it's important for us to notice, as the Pharisee did, that Jesus is indeed allowing the woman to do this. Just keep that in mind. We, we may tend to forget that or, or, or not, not notice it the way this is put together, but that is some, something that we should notice just like the Pharisee did. He's letting this happen. The implications of that fact will involve not only the woman and the Pharisee, but all the other guests as well, as we'll see. So verse 40 says, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. So now, Jesus is going to show that he understands what the Pharisee's thinking. And he tells this parable. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, but I'll just let, let me just put a little footnote in here. A denarii was basically a day's wages. So both debtors, both debtors owned, owed quite a bit. Roughly, you know, two months of work worth of money or a year and three quarters of, of, of work worth of money. Verse 42 says, And when they could not pay, he, meaning the moneylender, canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom 
he canceled the larger debt. And he, meaning Jesus, said to him, you have judged rightly. Notice Jesus' teaching that love comes when a debtor is forgiven. And a response to that forgiveness is love. The love does not earn the forgiveness, but the forgiveness deserves a response of love. It's a, it's, it, the cause is the forgiveness, the result is the love. That's clearly what Jesus is teaching. Now at this point, it makes, I, I, I just bet that Simon the Pharisee, he thinks that's kind of an odd thing for Jesus to say. You know, here, here the Pharisees thought about like what this woman has been doing has been really weird. And Jesus is allowing it. And then Jesus gives this account. It may have seemed to Simon that this has little to do with what's going on. Because there's nothing in there about, about kissing and weeping and all that. And as far as Simon the Pharisee is concerned, there's been no forgiveness of any kind. So Jesus then explains... Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, verse 44, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now again, a generous and welcoming host would have provided water for his guests to wash off their feet, as I mentioned before. The failure to do so would not exactly be a disgrace, but it would just kind of indicate thoughtlessness and neglect. And the host doing that to his guests would be kind of like, well, you're not really honoring and respecting the guests. This woman, however, the uninvited, unwelcomed guest, did what the host neglected to do. As a matter of fact, she unabashedly, shamelessly, boldly showed her love, the love that was lacking from the Pharisee. This woman, realizing her need for forgiveness and in gratitude for her great debt being forgiven, acted boldly and shamelessly in love. That's why she did what she did. And so Jesus has started to explain that. But he's going to go on. Verse 45. You gave me no kiss. From the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now, it would have been normal, in case you're wondering about the kiss part, it's normal for, back then, for a host to kiss his guests. That would have been normal. They usually kiss each other on the cheek. People, by the way, would kiss others out of affection or or out of respect, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't have the social tab- taboo that we'd have now. I remember when I was pastor at Northwest, uh, there was one guy in the church who came up and kissed me, and it kind of seemed kind of weird. But you know, I it was uh, obviously a, uh, a sign of uh, expression of respect and, and and affection. 
But it's weird today, right? But it wouldn't have been weird back then. Theft, by the way, is the reason why throughout the New Testament, we are commanded, or believers are commanded to greet one another with a kiss. That's because it was normal back then. By the way, Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 29, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, and 1 Peter 5, 14. So I think you could say, well, it would be biblical if we wanted to start kissing each other, but I'm not necessarily proposing that. But it was normal back then. And the fact that Simon the Pharisee had not kissed Jesus when he came in, Jesus made note of that. Failure to kiss a guest would have been seen as at least failure to give a true and hearty welcome. The woman, the uninvited guest, did what the host neglected to do. She unabashedly showed her love and respect for Jesus by kissing his feet. Love that the Pharisee hadn't shown. Now she did that as we will discover, realizing her need for forgiveness and her gratitude for her great debt being forgiven. And she acted boldly and shamelessly, because again, that was kind of a spectacle that she did in doing so. Now, there's even more. Verse 46, Jesus says, again, he's talking to, to Simon the Pharisee, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, it was, again, a sign of respect in that culture. We wouldn't do it today. As a matter of fact, we might even think it really, really super weird. If someone, you know, came over to your house and you poured oil on their head. But back then, it was a greeting that showed respect and honor, especially to to an esteemed person. You showed oil, you poured oil on their head, and usually it was olive oil. And that would have been seen as a failure to show honor to that honorable person. The woman, the uninvited guest, did what the host neglected to do. She unabashedly showed her love because of her realizing her need for forgiveness and her gratitude for her great debt being forgiven. She acted boldly and shamelessly. And not only did she put oil on Jesus, she put much more expensive perfume. Jesus goes on, he says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now again, if you remember that parable, the point of the parable that Jesus told was not that love produced forgiveness. It was the other way around. Love was the indication that a person realized they had been forgiven. It was the result. The love was a result of the forgiveness granted and was a measure of how the recipient understood how great the debt was that had been forgiven. Love and gratitude were tied to forgiveness, and Jesus is making that clear. Love is tied to gratitude, and gratitude is tied to understanding that you've been forgiven. But here, this is a point that the Pharisee missed. Love and gratitude were not shown by the woman to the Pharisee. The teacher of the law. They were not shown 
by her making sacrifices in the temple. If she realized she was forgiven for her sinful ways, she didn't go to the teacher of the law. She didn't go to the temple. Her love and gratitude for being forgiven for her sins were not demonstrated in any way or place that the Pharisee would have expected. The love and gratitude for her forgiving for forgiven sins were directed to and accepted by Jesus. Now the full import of that hadn't probably sunk into Simon the Pharisee yet. But he goes on in the end of verse 47, Jesus says, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now with that last part of verse 47, Jesus is implying that the Pharisee either thinks he is not in need of forgiveness or lacks gratitude for his forgiveness. But also Jesus is pointing out, you didn't even show normal affection that a, house, that a host should have shown to his guests. And going beyond that, Simon the Pharisee certainly didn't show Jesus the gratitude that a forgiven debtor would show to the one who was responsible for his debt being forgiven. The woman did. Now again, the connection that Simon probably had is that if sins are forgiven, surely it's God who deserves the gratitude and the love that results from that forgiveness. But Jesus, by accepting the acts of gratitude shown by the woman, is telling Simon that he, Jesus, is indeed the one deserving the gratitude for forgiven sin. And now he's going to make that all the more clear. And this probably shocked. This probably shocked Simon the Pharisee. Verse 48. He, meaning Jesus, said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Jesus now plainly confirms what the woman has already shown. She has demonstrated weeping gratitude and selfless love for her forgiven sin. And Jesus not only has accepted that, but also confirms that she is indeed forgiven, in spite of what the Pharisee may have led her to believe by his behavior. Even more, he is formally accepting the gratitude for forgiven sin. He is saying, it's proper what you did in thanking me for forgiving your sin. Now that must have been astonishing. It must have been a revelation to Simon. It was also clearly a revelation to the other guests at the dinner. Because the next verse says, verse 49, Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? Who is this Jesus? The entire dinner party now understands the importance of what was going on. They probably realize that Jesus right now is not pronouncing a fresh forgiveness for the woman's sins. They all heard the parable. 
Rather, they comprehend that Jesus has confirmed that the woman was indeed correct for directing and addressing her gratitude for forgiveness to Jesus. Her weeping joy and her shameless action of worship was properly directed toward Jesus. Jesus got the love because Jesus had forgiven the sins. Now, Jesus goes even further next and he confirms what the dinner guests are talking about each other and talking about to each other. Verse 50. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That singes it. Her faith in Jesus as the forgiver of her sin is what saves her. Now, of course, none of that's any different from today in terms of it's faith in Jesus as the forgiveness of sin, as the forgiver of sin, as the atonement for sin. That saves us. Now, when we look at this dinner party, we can ask ourselves, which are we? Maybe there's some people here who didn't really completely understand who Jesus is. We're asking, you know, like the guests were were asking, who is this? And maybe only now, kind of realizing that Jesus is the source of God's forgiveness. By the way, there was another dinner, not that long after this, when Jesus took a cup, and we had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus gave his life on the cross for sinners and was raised from the dead. And after that, one of his disciples said, To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So maybe there are some people here who are in that place where they're not quite sure. And so this, as it was to the guests at the dinner, should at least get you thinking. Maybe Jesus is the one through whom we get forgiveness of sin, and to whom we owe our thanks. Believe in Him. And then, after our sins are forgiven, you can give Him the gratitude and devotion due only to the One who has forgiven us. But maybe we're not like the guests. Maybe we're a little bit further along. Or maybe we think we are. Maybe we're like Simon, the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee, by the way, saw a shameless, selfless devotion to Jesus and judged it. He not only failed to honor Jesus as the one who brought God's forgiveness, but even failed to honor him as a great teacher or an important person. 
His view of Jesus and his treatment of Jesus was one of kind of casuality. It's like, oh, I think of Jesus as a teacher, but I myself am also a respectable person, right? And thus, in even how Jesus describes it, he ended up treating Jesus as something of an equal, perhaps. We might be like Simon if we're sort of comfortable with Jesus, but not devoted to him. Simon judged the woman who acted boldly and shamelessly in worship of Jesus. And even if we're not going as far as Simon is to not recognize Jesus as the source of our forgiveness, we might sometimes judge some other believers for kind of getting overboard. Those people are going overboard with how much they're showing their devotion to Jesus. They're getting their hair wet. They're crying. Look how emotional they are. Do we judge others when they act boldly and shamelessly in their emotional devotion to Jesus? Well, if we're tempted to do that, we might be a little like Simon. But then, of course, there's a woman. And maybe the beginning of this account, we're all thinking, that woman, (laughs) I sure don't want to be like her. She's sinful, right? She shows up sinful, she's uninvited. She's a sinful, uninvited sinner. But in the end, she's the only one that Jesus praises and announces forgiveness for. So that woman, she saw Jesus as the reason for all she did. She wept because of him. She was there because of him. She brought the flask of ointment for him. She did what she did for him and to him, not to impress anybody else, but because it was Jesus. Jesus was her only focus. Now, if we kind of want to adopt that for ourselves, maybe we should ask questions like this. When we come to church, or when we go to work, or when we do anything around the house, Can we honestly say, like she could have, we are here for him and not anybody else? Can we honestly say that we do what we do for him and not for anybody else? Can we honestly say that we weep and sacrifice and boldly and shamelessly show our devotion to Christ? Our proper response to Jesus is full love and complete, unreserved, bold, shameless devotion. Because he first loved us. As Robert read, I'm just going to read 1 John 4, beginning with verse 18. There's no no fear in love. We don't even fear other people judging us. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So we need to ask ourselves, which are these we like? 
each of us needs to ask, are we really being like that woman? Are we being like the Pharisee? Or maybe we're not quite there yet and we're like the guests. And all of this is a revelation. Either way, we need to think about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the truth that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to you except through him. And we ask that if there are any here who haven't yet come to you through him, that you would have your will with them, call them to yourself. But for those of us who do realize that Jesus is our only way to you and our only forgiveness for our sin, we ask that you would convict us and help us to be like this woman who was shameless and bold in her devotion to the one and only Savior. And we ask that you bless us now as we go throughout the week and as we engage in our lives, at work, and in our families, and in everything else we do, that you would be glorified and your son Jesus would be exalted. And we ask all, your, all these things for your glory in his name. Amen.